Hello, everyone, and welcome to Police Off the Cuff, Real Crime Stories. I'm your host, Bill Cannon, retired 27-year veteran of the NYPD, and my co-host tonight, straight out of Brooklyn, retired NYPD detective, Phil Grimaldi. How you doing, Phil? I'm doing pretty good, Billy, and I'm excited to get right back into it and get this uh, two-parter going. Yeah, I think there's a lot of fans out there that are sitting on the edge of their seat. They didn't even buy any popcorn. So uh, we got to get this thing going, too. Just below me in the window is uh, retired NYPD first grade detective and organized crime expert, Thomas Dades. How are you tonight, Tommy? Very good, Bill. Thank you. I sort of miss your hat a little bit, but that's all right. And to, and in the next window is is retired Brooklyn Rackets Bureau head, Michael Vecchioni as a prosecutor. How are you doing, Mike? I'm good, Bill. How are you guys? And Phil, We're doing how- great. We're looking forward to this. We're going to do part two, whereas... Uh, we were talking about Sammy the Bull Gravano, and part two is where he cooperates. Some would say he was a rat, but he prefers to say he cooperated. So, folks, we'll be right back after we play the Police Off the Cuff song. It's a show with two retired detectives that were in the thick of New York crime, fast and hectic. They got some stories and some jokes. Even an interview with the most powerful folks. Off the cuff, off the cuff. One episode just ain't enough. Get a little laughter and an interview too. It's maybe the best thing you can do. Hey, folks, welcome back to Real Crime Stories. And we're going to recap uh, the story of The Last Gangster that was covered on 2020. And The Last Gangster, really, the, the main character in it is Sammy the Bull Gravano. We're going back to 1985. We don't want to go back to mob history. We're going to go back to 1985, where there was a little bit of a, uh, a conspiracy with a, with a bunch of guys to get rid of Paul Castellano. And that's where we pretty much left off. But because of that, you know, uh, John Gotti became the head of the Gambino crime family. We know that they did a hit on uh, Paul Castellano and Tommy Bellotti without permission of the commission. That caused some problems. And uh, John Gotti took over. He may have not been the best pick to be the head of the Gambino crime family, but in essence, he was the head of the uh, Gambino crime family. And that resulted in some uh, a lot of moving parts. And tonight we're going to talk mostly about why and what led to the cooperation of Sammy the Bull Gravano. Tommy, you want to start off? Um, Matty Corco and Frank Spiro, who are the two agents basically assigned to uh, the Gambino squad, and they were assigned to Sammy. They had a very good rapport with Sammy throughout the years. Uh, Sammy, you know, respected them. He respected, they respected him. Uh, when Sammy got arrested, they played some tapes, which was very, uh, you know, shrewd on the part of the government that they picked up where, uh, they knew 
Sammy would see through a lot of things by playing those tapes. And uh, after about nine months of Sammy really putting the pieces together of what was going on, um, he reached out to his wife, who reached out to Magic Corco and Frank Spiro and said that uh, he was looking to come in and cooperate. So uh, after a court hearing, they brought him behind chambers and uh, began to uh, proffer of, you know, everything that he knew until they come in, came up with an agreement and he uh, got taken out of uh, MCC and uh, that was uh, the beginning of the end. You know, Tommy, just one of the things that I think we need to uh, clarify for some of the folks listening, what changed the whole um, landscape of cooperation was that guy from the Bronx named Rico, <laughs> right? Rico was the racketeering influence, corruption, organized crime. And that statue could put people away for 40 years, 60 years, 80 years, and where mobsters were like, I'm a stand-up guy, I don't rat, all of a sudden oh, when they were looking at 60 years. What, what John Gotti, Frank Picasso, and Sammy Gravano were looking at was life in a supermax upon conviction. So that's, uh, Mike, you want to comment about Rico and what it did to the mob? Well, it's exactly what you said, Bill. Rico was a, um, was a, was a weapon, a real heavy, it was, an, it was a, a nuclear weapon for the mob. Because in addition to the, to the sentences that a conviction carried, um, it also scared everybody in the, uh, in, in the families because they were worried about the low-level guys who were on the hook for many, many years in jail turning. You know, uh, before that, anybody turned, well, you know, they, they took their chances with state court, state laws, and, they, and the penalties were not necessarily as, um, as, as stringent as, as the RICO law. And the other part about it is you didn't really have to, in RICO, you don't really have to do anything. All you have to be is part of an organization, and the government establishes the organization. They establish that people had committed acts in furtherance of the continuation of that organization, and anybody who's a part of it is wrapped up in the, in the RICO law. So, so that is a, um, you know, that's like taking a lasso and throwing it out there and, and it hits, anybody it hits is going into, um, or anybody it, it grabs is going in. And, and that's a tough, tough thing to, um, you know, to, for the, for the, the, the wise guys to, uh, to deal with. Now, New York State has a statute that is very, very similar called OCA, the Organized Crime Control Act. And it was par it was uh, parallel it parallels the RICO statute, but um, but it it it's a little different and a little bit more difficult to use because you have to establish three crimes to further the um, the the continuation yeah, of the organization, and and it um, although it does carry life, so that's one of the things that that it it's a little bit it, RICO carries life as well, but the New York statute is a little different, it's a little bit more difficult and. It's a little bit more difficult for prosecutors who don't necessarily deal with it all the time to to be able to make a case um, that will stand up and, and get a conviction. The feds deal with it all the time. So um, 
So it, it was a very, very powerful, and it is a very, very powerful uh, weapon against uh, against organized crime. Well, well, John Gotti's position was that he was the boss and Sammy should take the hit for him because they needed John Gotti to run the organization. But I don't think Sammy was having that. No, he wasn't. He was pissed off about it. He, he wasn't. He wasn't. He said in that show, Gotti betrayed me. That's why I betrayed him. I mean, that's essentially what what he said. And um, and Tommy's right. He listened to those tapes. Gotti was setting him up. You know, he was setting him up. He was setting him up for a fall. And I think he thought that uh, Gravano would just simply roll over, and um, and he didn't. Hey, Tommy, I got a quick question for you. What period of – it's a two-part question. What period of time from when he was arrested – obviously, there was the conversations where Gotti told Sammy, uh, here's what's going to happen. Uh, you're going to take the hit. The other guys are going to take the hit. The family needs me. What period of time was that before he decided to cooperate? And obviously, the tapes – uh, that were played, you said were intricate at the arraignment. Was there other stuff turned over to his attorneys that also like compounded what he heard on the tapes? No. Uh, when they got arrested, I believe it's December of 91. Yes. Um, it was not, they, at the arraignment, they played those tapes that uh, were very derogatory towards Sammy, you know, conversations that went on in the second floor apartment of the Ravenite when right. Sammy wasn't present. And you could tell by what John Gotti was saying that, you know, he was displeased with a lot of things with Sammy. Um, Sammy, I think, got really uh, taken back by what he said. And I think it was nine months that Sammy was in jail and things John Gotti said to him, uh, you know, about him taking the hit that the families need him right you know out there uh that's basically what got him to you know the, the point i was trying to make was this wasn't a split second decision he heard no, the tapes and then no, boom all on cooperation off the tapes there's no doubt about it but then right. a lot of things there were a lot of incidents in jail while they were being detained that really uh set him off i mean there's a story he tells about uh, him and Frank Ocasio. I think they got like 10 oranges from commissary and they both ate an orange. And <laughs> it sounds so stupid, but uh, they both ate an orange and they I saved eight of the oranges for, for John because he was the boss. Right. And when he came out of his cell, he literally like lost his mind that they ate the oranges before he woke up. Because he was the boss and they should have waited. It was getting that petty. The, the point I was trying to make, Tommy, was that this wasn't a split second decision because a lot of it, oh, Sammy's about, and I'm not trying to stick up for him. He's an no, all time guy. But it, it was like a, a period of time occurred. He yeah. heard the tapes, he heard other things, he heard the demeanor of John in jail, some yeah. of the things he said, and he decided. Put it over the top was the demeanor in jail that he knew that, like, you know, what the game plan was. And he just was like, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not taking a hit on this by myself. And he reached out to his wife and uh, she reached out to the agents. And Sammy equated it to playing chess. He goes, and he, he checkmated him. He checkmated him. Okay. And again, I'm making the point that this wasn't something that happened in a split second. It was over oh. a period of time. So you could almost understand 
I'm not trying to say I understand that he cooperated, whatever. I'm not trying to take his back, but you could understand how it it it, it morphed from one thing to the next to the next, and then he made the decision. So- I've seen I've seen guys that uh, it's taken some time, and it really like you saw it in their face how hard it was for them to really agree to come on board. You know, they want, they would tell you they want to, and they had every reason to do so. You know, there's other, other situations and they had every reason to do so. They were betrayed every which way from Sunday and still killed them inside and took a while for them to come around. Once they came around, they, they came around full boat, but actually pondered in jail for a while, really like, feeling that their life would be over if they did. Now, you know, Tom, Tommy, it's it's no different when in in a homicide case you get three perps and you get them all in a separate room and you say, the first guy that flips gets the best deal. Who's going to do it? Your buddy's in there singing like a parakeet. He's, the other guy's in the other room singing like a parakeet. You're going to start singing, right? So it's, you know, whoever sings first gets the best deal and we all it came a point where you know you had to board the doors because that you do a case for 20 guys you know 19 were banging on the door to come in you know it's like i said somebody's got to go to jail you know but people when sam after sammy Kawhi, if you look statistically before sammy cooperated yeah you had cooperating you had top echelon informants whatever but Think of the difference of how many people cooperated before Sammy and how many people cooperated after Sammy. He kind of opened up the floodgates and started a trend. You know, I just wanted to say something. We mentioned something about, uh, you know, the 19 murders and the deal he cut. Someone in the chat, I just want to, and Tommy, you would probably be able to answer this best. Um, Retired FM29 says he killed a 16-year-old Alan Kaiser an innocent bystander shot and killed seconds after witnessing Gravano and an associate carrying out a drive-by shooting in Bensonhurst, Brooklyn in 1977. Is there any truth to that, Tommy? Yeah, there's truth to that happened on Kings Highway, I believe, but there's a long story to it, and it's not my place to get into it. Was that where the biker came into his yes. club? Yes. Yeah, he told that story in his uh, in his podcast. Some biker came into his club and basically said, I'm taking this place over. The guy didn't know who he, who uh, Sammy was. That and was then, one of the two where he actually pulls the trigger. Right. And, and then he chased the guy. Oh, he hunted the guy down uh-huh. and found him a couple of weeks later. So Yeah, I heard that. And I think the 16-year-old got involved or tried to uh, stand up for the biker. There's, and he there's, more to this, there's more to the story, but... You know, yeah, it's a kid, so better off leave it alone, Tommy. I don't want to insult anybody. Yeah, let's let's not go there, Mike. Can I make a quick point about what you were saying about Rico? Now, my understanding, and I think I might be on the right track here. You could probably clarify a little better. A simple uh, gambling case against a wise guy, or a simple extortion case that could have been a two-year bid, a three-year bid, a five-year bid, now turns into a twenty-year bid. Is that am I reading that right, Mike? Well. It- it turned it what what they'll use it for is an underlying act. You have to have you have to have two acts in, that are done in furtherance of the conspiracy, which is the organized crime family, so to speak. And if they're done in furtherance of that conspiracy, then they could be wrapped into a RICO statute as long as the government establishes the um, the the corrupt organization. So 
if a guy's in the Gambino family and they establish that he's in the Gambino family and he does a whatever the, the act is, and there's a whole litany of acts that are that are listed right. in the law, not just any, just not not just any act. It's got to be one of the ones that are listed, listed. Yeah, then he then he's liable to to be wrapped up into a RICO uh, RICO uh, indictment and convicted of RICO. The answer is correct. Yes. So, so the point be being that it, it really uh, it put a hurting on you know even low level guys that are involved oh, yeah. or mid guys. So that's what I think Billy was trying. The point Billy was trying to make that this is when you know, the turning point came in organized crime where you started to see people cooperate when a guy thought he was going to go away for two, three years and he's getting a, a 20 year bid or a 30 year bid or whatever it is. And, uh, you know, he's tied up into this whole, uh, hierarchy with, uh, kicking money to higher ups and stuff. And, uh, it could turn real bad, real fast for a guy like that. That's why it was a bad situation for the, for the wise guys, because those low level guys were wrapped up now to potentially go to jail for many, many years. So they yeah. turned, it's easy for them to turn and give up what they know and, you know, and cut a deal with the government. And that's what one of the, you know, the benefits to the government that RICO provides. So, you know, you know, you know I was just saying we would we would we touched upon in the first show how you'd have to be the feds because the state could never offer someone with 19 murders, basically absolution to cooperate. And but the feds do this and they take a lot of criticism for doing this, particularly by the family members of the people who were murder victims. The state oh. never really had the, the the money to back up cases like that, you know, as far as um, relocating people, the witness protection program, you know, yeah. there was a lot of things the state didn't have that you were able to offer federally. That's why a lot of times we would uh, have a state prosecutor, like, you know, from Mike, from Mike's unit, you know, um, cross-designated to the federal system, and we would work it together, but we would use federal resources to make it happen. Bill, there's one one other thing about what you just said, and that is, um, you said, you know, a state prosecutor doesn't have the wherewithal or whatever to uh, to do to care, take care of 19 murders. The bottom line is that you know these people uh, or give a pass. To somebody like Gravano for the 19 murders, because the the DA has to be elected, so you know he's got a constituency. He's got to worry about being elected in four years, every four years. The feds don't have to worry about that. The Justice Department is on forever. So right. if if DA Hines gave Sammy Gravano a pass on 19 murders, he's well, not getting reelected. He's not getting reelected. Yeah. So you know right. that that's another. That's, that's a very good point, Mike. That's a very yeah. good point that you bring out. So. You, you know, you hear a lot about, especially when if you ever listen to Sammy the Bull's uh, podcast, he always refers to, that's Cosa Nostra. That's Cosa Nostra. And he almost says it with a reverence, like he's talking about a religion or something. But we've well, all discussed that it's all bullshit, really. I what mean, he's trying to say is what he believed, like what he believed in. He gives that story about Carlo Gambino walking into a restaurant, seeing a... Uh, you know, uh, a guy with his girlfriend, otherwise guy with his girlfriend. girlfriend. I, I believe that's called Gumara, right? Yeah, just the way he handled himself. <laughs> and he put his wife to the same place. That's Goom. And the, 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 the speech that Carlo gave him when he says, yeah, that's Cosa Nostra. He, he was just, they believed like a certain way of life, like Sammy was trying, like brings out a certain way of life, what he thought things were. 
But as we know, yeah, if it all was true and everybody went by the rules, maybe you could say there was some honor to it. You know what I mean? But it was all a bunch of bullshit. You know, yeah. there's no honor to it. Everybody backstabbed each other and nobody gave a shit about nobody. It was whoever was going to able to, you know, step higher, more power, more money. Uh, you know, it, 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 the, the, the whole thing is just a crock of shit. I think the exact quote that Carlo Gambino gave the, uh, to the wise guy was he saw him in a place that he eats with his wife and he, and he now he's with his girlfriend. And he said to him, he called him over and he says, do you love me as much as you love your wife? And he says, yeah, of course I do. He goes, well, I don't think so. And he meant, you know, cause he's bringing his girlfriend in there. How much you're disrespecting your wife by bringing your girlfriend to the same place that you bring your wife. So how much could you love me that you're saying hello to me now, you know? And I guess there's, listen, obviously the rules are always broken with organized crime, La Cosa Nostra, whatever way you want to refer to it. And a lot of times there's sit downs, they buy their way out of it or they talk their way out of it. And listen, drugs have been in, in, organized crime since before we were all born and it's supposed to be deal and die and they all did it. But, uh, there's passes when, you know, when somebody hands you a hundred thousand dollars in cash and it's 1970, that's like a million dollars today. You know, Listen, you don't, you don't think Paul Castellano was getting money from the Gemini lounge from Roy DeMeo coming to Nino Gaggi for all their drugs. He just didn't ask where the money was coming from. They exactly. Actually, absolutely. They all were. That's that. That's what I said last, you know, on, on Tuesday. They say they weren't getting, you know, they don't want to know anything about drugs, except that when they when they got the envelope, they didn't ask, well, did this come from drugs? That's total bullshit. That that honor stuff is, you know, is is a is a fantasy with them. You know, they're when you look at what what honor really means, they have no honor. They no. have no none. On the screen is uh, Paul Castellano, and uh, basically what we're talking about, the last gangster, this was the whole story behind this, was the planning and the conspiracy to take out Big Paul, who was the head of the Gambino family. And after this was done, I'm sure a lot of people were very happy, and there were some people that were unhappy about it because it resulted in John Gotti, who was a very flamboyant guy who played by his own rules, but... By doing some of the things you said, and Tommy, you spoke about this, by having meetings with 123 different gangsters who were identified by going in person to the Ravenite, that exposed the entire Gambino crime family to be I identified. Spoke, I spoke to one of the agents that sat in the vans in the apartments a little while ago. Um, you know, we, I've been friends with Magic Corgo and Frank Spiro since 1990. Um, they they wouldn't be sit they wouldn't have been sitting there every night for three years if they didn't know every day what crew was coming. They probably knew who was coming and who they were quicker than John Gotti knew who was coming on that day. Because he had people report to the Ravenite, you know, on certain days of the week, they were able to identify 125 individuals that Otherwise, they probably would never identify. So they had an OP right there because they knew that every week, twice a week, or what, however many times a week, a lot of guys were showing up there. So Tommy, explain it, an OP. Explain it was, an OP. It was like it was like working snoo, but with and wise guys. <laughs> you no, know, they, they had a van. They had an apartment. 
they were able to distinguish that the second floor who was living up there, which was a guy's uh, a guy who passed away. It uh, was a maid guy named Sorelli. Uh, his widow was still living there when she was leaving, how long she was leaving for. And they found out, however, they found out that they would have meetings upstairs and talk explicitly about certain things. And they got probable cause to put a bug in the apartment. So they knew when she was going on vacation, what coming home for three days and were able to bug that apartment, which was the downfall of uh, Scotty. She went out, it was Thanksgiving weekend when she went to visit her family and stay with them for the whole Thanksgiving weekend when they went in and bugged the apartment upstairs. They, they watched her come out, went in, and that was it. They, they had some kind of information, Tom. I don't remember if they had I'm sure it was source information, you know, I don't know who it was, how they knew, but they had enough to get probable cause to get into that apartment. No doubt, no doubt. Well, they had the bug also in the little hallway, the little Yes, they had it in the hallway. They they got something, some stuff out of the hallway, but they got nothing like they got out of the apartment. Oh, no, 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 no. So, but uh, they, they, it was the only way they were going to get them. And and they sequestered the jury for the entire. That was the big key. To that the was the big move because, as Sammy admitted, on, they on bought show, everybody. He he bought you know people in terms of uh, of the juries. So so they they didn't beat the cases. He um, he, he he bought the cases. That's what happened. But they he couldn't do it with the last one. They sequestered the jury for the entire time. They were all anonymous jurors, and um, you know, and that, that's how come they were so successful. That's key in a high-profile case, especially with organized crime, to keep oh, everybody uh, their identity secret and sequester them. That's obviously very key because, uh, as Sammy was telling the feds, you know, they had bought several jurors already. So, uh, hey, I guess I, that was key. I, when I was a young assistant DA, I went I to. Tommy Cotolo, uh, Billy Cotolo. I had Billy Cotolo on trial with, with a guy named George Tropiano. They killed the guy over. He owed them money for a bet. They dumped, put him in a barrel. They dumped him in the East River. And the barrel came up because they didn't cut the body open. And the gases brought the, the, the barrel to the surface. And a tugboat captain hooked the barrel, brought it over to Manhattan. And a detective over in Manhattan named, Nick, uh, named George Kosakis got the case, and came over to Brooklyn. Now, I had the third trial. It was tried by two other people before me. But the case that I had, I had gotten new witnesses. We had gotten a lot of, we had, we had done a very, very good job. And uh, I'm sorry, I tried the case three times. The first trial was the best. And it turns out it was 11 to 1 for conviction. <laughs> and, we, and I thought it was this guy from Bensonhurst who was the, who was the holdout. It was some young woman. On the second level of the jury, I think she was juror number seven. I'll never forget this. Years later, a guy named Marty Light, an attorney, attorney. who was arrested, he represented, um, he represented Billy Catola. And he testified in front of Congress that he fixed that jury. And that's why we didn't get the conviction. And, and the witnesses were, you know, were mutts, as you well know. These are the kind of witnesses you get in these cases. And as I tried the second one, one of the, one, it was... Another set of minutes to cross them with. Tried the case a third time, even more minutes, and they wound up getting getting acquitted. But uh, but Catolo, 
<laughs> almost went down the first time that I had him, 11 to 1 for conviction. And it was because they bought uh, a young woman who lived in a neighborhood where one of the wise guys in the in the court looking, you know, was in there viewing the case, watching the trial. He recognized her? He recognized her. And they got to her. And that's how they that's how they beat it. So had you gotten him, he might be alive today. Yeah, he probably would. The tool might have been alive had you. You, you know, Mike, do you, do you ever, as a as a mob murder, ever solved without a cooperator? <laughs> no, because I don't think uh, a civilian I, I witness say, wants to be a witness. You know, not any of the ones that I did, they were all. I always had. We always had. You know, some kind of wise guys who or cooperators. Um, it was just the way it was. Look at we did. Tommy and I did this case with the the, the victim was a guy named Chester Checkett. Check Checkett, this kid who was selling drugs in Bent's, in Bay Ridge on the on the the turf of two wise guys, and um, and we had to we couldn't we had one cooperator who who who, who <laughs> made himself known to Tommy and he came to us and Tommy came to me and said Mike can we do this we got one can you get an indictment I promise you I will keep working on the case. And he turned up like two or three more witnesses, and we wound up convicting both of them. But we never would have been able to do it without cooperators. There was no, there was no way. The case. How old was the case, Tommy, when we when we got the indictment? Ten years? Uh, Eight close years? To it. Yeah, yeah, close to it. Exactly. The mother you know, victim went to a a, a, a police um, council meeting when Dinkins and Ray Kelly became the Dinkins was the mayor, brand new mayor Kelly brand new police commissioner. She went to a meeting in the, in the, um, the 6-8 precinct and, um, and said, what about my son's case? It's been sitting here. Nobody's done anything. And then Mr. Dades and his partner got the case and the rest is history. We, can, we convicted him. That was, you know, we still laugh about that case because the witnesses were out of central casting, guys. Out of central casting. <laughs> I had to just tell you one, one quick story. We had this guy, and I, he was a great witness. And he looked like a, a, a bum, really, when he was in my office doing his, doing his thing. I said, listen, when you come to testify, make sure that you come dressed like you dressed for church. So he walks in. Listen, he was about 6'2". He had on a lime green suit with a, with a jacket. It was a short jacket, and his hair was blonde, and it oh. Straight up on his head, he released it so that it was straight up on his head. You remember him, Tom? Yeah, all yeah. that dollar imitation to the T. Yeah, the last part of this. He's on the stand. My co-counsel asks him his name. He gives him his name and he grabs his groin area and shakes it as he's answering the question. The next question, same thing. He grabs his groin area and starts shaking it. I said to my, my buddy, Artie, I said, Artie, for a recess. Let's get this fucking guy off the stand. Got to talk to him. And we got him in the back. And I, and I said to him, I said, what are you doing? He goes, what do you mean? I said, what are you grabbing yourself and, and shaking every time you had? He says, I, he didn't even know. He says, I am? I don't know. I, I don't know. But before I want to brought him over, I said to him, I told you to dress like you dress for church. He goes, this is how I dress for church. <laughs> he likes to make that, his plan. Part of that story not true? Oh. Everything is true about that story. And, oh. You know, so these are the guys you have to get. There was another guy in that in that same trial. His name was Nick. Uh, his name was um, 
Gattuso. I forgot his first name. Michael. And what? Michael, Michael Gattuso. Yeah, Mikey, that's it, Gattuso. So he comes in. I said, what's your name? He goes, my name is Mikey the Killer. I said, the killer? Why did they call you the killer? He said, because I used to kill cats when I was a young guy. <laughs> that was just, and he carried it with him. So, Bill, to answer your question, there is no way you can do and convict in my opinion. As, as Mike I, used to say, you're not going to get the information from a priest. You know what I'm saying? That's for sure. You know, um, who better to tell you what these guys are like than the guys just like them, you know? So, but you know what, Phil? One other thing, you, you have to have multiple guys. It's not enough to just have one because if that guy falls apart, you got nothing. If you have one and then you have a second who backs up the first guy. Corroboration. Another one who backs up the second, the first and second, well, then you have a case, you know? So. Well, you know, sometimes a lot of these guys – you have to vet their information because you don't know if it's true. It's up to yeah. the investigators to corroborate their information. Exactly. You know? Right. Absolutely. So, you know, even though Sammy was a great witness, uh, I'm sure he had to be told numerous times, you better tell the hundred percent the truth on everything or well, as far as, as far as Sammy's crimes, he had to tell the truth, but they had, they had John on tape saying, yeah. you know, this guy got killed. He didn't do anything else but not come in when I called him. I mean, you can't get any better than that if you got it on tape. Sammy just sealed their fate. The tapes well, did. You know, Sammy was a great witness for them, but the tapes were, um, you know, were the, were the icing on the cake. And that was sealed the deal, you know. So. That was the tapes that were made in the apartment above the uh, yeah. social club, yeah. right? The woman yeah. marked, he was away. They planted the bug. Yeah. And obviously they felt free in that area that uh, they didn't think any chance of it being okay. bugged. So and they spoke, they spoke freely about murders, right, Tom? Without a doubt, yeah. yeah. Tom. Picture, picture like investigating guys at that level, you know, and sitting there after the bugs went in and watching the tape recorder, listening to it, and all of a sudden you hear the main guys and they're admitting homicides. Like, you know, the the uh, the adrenaline's got to be yeah. going out of your brain. You know, that's yeah. the amazing feeling, you know? Your heart's got to be pumping 100 miles an hour. Tommy and, and uh, Mike, I'm going to post this question to both of you, just a quick response to it. Um, based on the fact, now, obviously you said earlier, Tommy, that when Sammy cooperated, it opened the floodgates for a lot of cooperators. Since Sammy cooperated, and that's a lot of years ago, uh, there have been many trials where people cooperated, and their credibility has been attacked numerous times over and over again. Well, aren't you telling this story because you're getting off with these crimes and the government made a good deal to you? Do you think that uh, the fact that that's happened so many times. Now there's been a few recent cases, and I'm going to just cite the Ralph Dolds, who was a housing police officer that was killed, um, there were two cooperators in that case. They were actually uh, part of the shooting team, Dino Calabro and Joe Compatello, Joe Caves Compatello. They testified against Dino Saracino, Tommy Gioli, and Joe Waverly in that case. And in that case, there was no convictions. So my question to you guys is, do you think that the fact that there's been so many cooperators, they've been attacked by some of the best attorneys in the country? I'll, I, I'll give you a quick, a quick answer. On my Go part. ahead, Tom. Right. You're up. Um, I think it's best if you're going to cooperate people 
Because if you're cooperating people that are sitting in the audience, like, you know, if you're testifying against defendants at a table that stated that they ordered the murder, um, and the people that are taking the stand are the guys that actually pulled the trigger, I think jurors are starting to get a little leery of, of that. That's like saying, you know, go jump off the bridge. And, you know, if he tells you to jump off the bridge, will you do it? who really don't understand what goes on in organized crime. So I think you're most successful with cooperating witnesses who weren't the actual shooters or who may be one of the shooters, but the other guy sitting at the defense table was also a shooter. You know what I'm saying? If you're just a guy that said, you know, go kill that guy. And, you know, it just, the jurors aren't buying it as much as they used to. So I just think the caliber of what you did has a lot to do with how good of a witness you're going to be. Also, just to let people know who say, you know, this one's lying, that one's lying. You have nothing to, and I know cooperation agreements, several that have been ripped up. You have nothing to gain but lie. As the saying goes, the truth will set you free. If you're being profited with the feds, and, you know, first of all, you want you don't want nothing to come tap you on the shoulder after you plead to 50 years when you've only got 10, because that's what they make you do is an incentive to tell the truth. And we're out there corroborating it. Talk, they don't know what the witnesses we have. So it is Maddie and Frankie with Sammy. Um, so the incentive is to tell the truth. It doesn't gain you anything by lying, you know, so. There's no reason to lie. And if you're going to admit to 19 murders and people say, oh, you did 21, it, it's ridiculous. If you, you did 21 and you, you're admitting to 19, why wouldn't you admit to the 21? You, you know what I mean? Yeah. But I think that in a courtroom, it's best if you, you're the guy that, you know, didn't pull the trigger and your credibility to the jury is a lot better. I'm not saying that that, the way it works all the time. I'm just giving you my opinion and my opinion on that case because Ali Boy Persico and Jackie DeRoche, it was me, Gary Pontecorvo, Galetta, Tenor O'Brien, Jimmy DeStefano. Um, we arrested Jackie and Ali Boy on the murder conspiracy, which has a five year statute of limitations. I think we did it four years and change on both of them with nobody. And we beat, we, 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 we won that trial. And both Jackie and Ali Boy got life. When they actually, you know, ch charged who ordered that murder, you know, when they found the body, who was also involved in the conspiracy to that murder, and they found the body, the shooter testified, and the, the people who were involved in, ordering this person to shoot him beat the case. So the shooter who killed Billy Catullo beat the, was, was testifying. Right. The people who told him, he was the only shooter. Paul, the people who told him who were intermediates between Alley Boy Jackie and the shooter, they beat the case. And the shooter, they had a body, they had everything, and the jury didn't go for it. Bill, Mike, you want to follow up? Yeah, I want to do, I do. Um, not every cooperator is equal to other cooperators. There are some just because you're called a cooperator doesn't mean that a 
you can you can sell a jury on what you have to say b that you can stand up to to cross-examination and then c depends upon what you are getting off for i mean like tommy said if the guy's a shooter and the, and the prosecutor says i let the shooter off now convict the guy who who ordered him to do it that's a tough tough road to hoe so so not every cooperator is equal with the others and that's you know you have to factor that in which is why it's important to have more than one cooperator in in these cases and and other corroborating evidence and the other factor is how do we know that the prosecutor knows what the hell he or she was doing when they were course when they were when they were questioning these people once again not every prosecutor is equal to another prosecutor so the presentation of the case the picking of the jury the uh you know the opening statements where you're going to try to sell the jury on what you have which is a list of bums who are going to get on the stand is very very important and if they can't do that and a prosecutor can't do it well then i don't care how many and, and how good they they were in other cases they're not going to get a conviction so so there are a lot of factors with with cooperators and um and you have to be you know you have to be experienced first of all that's another thing you know who knows how experienced some of these 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 um these prosecutors were who put guys on the stand and got acquittals i i don't know i don't know how how you know but you have to have the the uh, you know the experience in order to to pull this stuff off and and summations are very important as tommy can tell you i mean you when when you sum up you have to be able to sell the jury on what they have just listened to and sell them on it by giving them reasons as to why these people are believable and um you know we joked before but it does go a long way to say listen they weren't going to commit these crimes instead in front of five priests they were going to do it in front of this these this list of bums so you wouldn't take home with you and wouldn't have it you at uh, you know uh, at your dinner table um and that's why you have to believe them they're bad and that's why they're believable because of their background and that because of their you know their experience in that world and well, you know mike not to uh change the subject but when you talk about the rittenhouse case that the, the district attorney and that was horrendous 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 that look the guy the da in that case had a lot going against him but he had no he had no skill to get around you know what it is that um that was that was thrown at him you know he had those the the, the video how is he going to explain away the videotapes which basically cleared the kid he had no skill to do that i don't know how experienced he was i don't know how brainwashed he was by the by the people you know the powers that be out there but he did a lousy job and that's he also wasn't a likable guy either his personality yeah, was not, he wasn't a likable guy yeah he he came across terrible he did come he, across bad exactly right keep in mind that the way you dress the way you carry yourself how polite you are in the courtroom how nice you are to the judge i've had jurors tell me afterwards that they didn't like so and so because he was nasty to the judge keep in mind guys in those courtrooms the judge is like God to these jurors. He's king, yeah. He's the king, and you have to be deferential to him. That's another factor that's taken in. And and I, you know, I used to be very honest with him. When I picked a jury, I used to say, "Listen, you're going to see here five guys. Not one of them would you bring home to meet, you know, your, um, you know, your family. Not one. In fact, you wouldn't want them anywhere near your home. You wouldn't tell them even where you live. But 
can you, if you believe what they have to say, can you convict based on, you know, on their testimony? And that's what you have to do. So, so there's a lot of factors in, in cases with cooperators. And the uh, reason I brought up those questions to you and to Tommy, Mike, was uh, in light of recent cases that where there were acquittals, where there were cooperators that testified they were involved in organized crime or whatever the case may be. And there were these attorneys that came out and said, it's about time, uh, you know, high profile attorneys saying, well, it's about time the government uses these liars. They pull them out of, you know, they pulled them out of the street. They offered them great deals and they, they lie against my client. So, in that case, I mentioned the Ralph Dolt's case and other cases. Uh, I'm not being specific about the cases, but you know, you know, I think you know where I'm going with it. That's the reason I raised the question: Is the government uh, using witnesses and promising them things that are making them tell lies? That's basically what these defense attorneys are saying. I think you explained it pretty well, but that's where not, I came not, up with the question: Not necessarily tell lies, but just not necessarily be likable because of their background. Not or believable because of their the accumulation of bad, uh, you know, bad acts in their background. That's what affects the credibility of of the witness, along with, as Tommy said, if it's the shooter and the shooter walks out because or gets a, a break and you want to convict, you know, the guy who um, who who ordered him to do it. That's a tough road to hoe, a tough yeah. road to hoe, unless you make the guy who's the order you know, who gives the order, somebody like a Gotti or somebody like a Castellano or somebody who the jury knows is, you know, right. the, the capo, the tutti capi kind of thing. Yeah. Then then you can sell it. But, uh, but it's just a, a medium level guy. And when you say, right. you know, defense attorneys say they they uh, tell them, promise them anything. I can tell you right now is that my experience is if uh, you promised a witness lunch, they would bite your head off. They're promised nothing, and they, they're made to plea like double of what they would normally get if they pled out themselves. So they're never promised anything. You know, like they're not like, guys, well, how long do you think I'm – the prosecutor don't want to hear how long you're going to do, uh, when am I going to get out of jail. It's, it's all based – in the federal system, it's all based on a 5K letter. And the judge is the one that sentences the defendant, you know, who cooperated. So, like I said, you have every reason to tell. Doesn't the government make a recommendation, Tom? They, yeah, the government at yeah. the end of everything will make right. a recommendation for leniency. Right. Yeah. And it's the judge who hands down the sentence. Some guys will go before that judge and it'll be time served. They have to be in it for six years. And some guys will go and the judge will say another 36 months. You know what I mean? It all depends on his guidelines, on what crimes he committed, on how well he did, on what little problems he gave everybody while he was incarcerated during that period of time. So defense attorneys talk a lot of bullshit. You know, um, nobody's promised nothing. And if they catch you in a lie, you got a problem. You, know, you, really do got a problem. Yeah, you're yeah. Done. done. You know, the, other, the only other part about this that is a factor now is that you know there is a there's a, a large segment of the population that doesn't trust the government at all. So defense attorneys take advantage of that when they start and when they either argue or when they sum up or when they you know they question witnesses. And it's it's a much easier road to go now because of the mistrust on the government for a defense attorney to convince 12 people 
that no matter what this guy says, I wasn't promised anything. The government did something behind the scenes that you're not heard hearing about. They can, if they're good attorneys, they can sell juries on that uh, on that proposition. But Tommy's right. If a prosecutor knows what he's doing or she knows what she's doing, there's no upfront promise at all. No upfront promise. You either do it the way I want you to do it or you don't do it at all. And I got you by the balls. So if you don't do it, I'm going to squeeze them until you scream and you're going to jail. So that's yep. what you have the way you have to be. Uh, guys, this is uh, Tommy, take- Tommy, Tommy, let me just take a quick break. Guys, this is Police Off the Cuff, Real Crime Stories. Um, if, if you're not subscribed to us, please go on our YouTube, hit that subscribe button, ring the bell, give us a thumbs up. Uh, we also have a Patreon to support us and uh, a YouTube membership. You can see the people with the green font are members of our YouTube crowd. And we also have a uh, an attorney that uh, we were always uh, pushing on this show. And his name is Joe Murray, and there's his flyer. Philly's going to read a quick ad. Joe Murray, attorney at law. Have you found yourself in a jam? Are you in need of legal counsel in the New York area? Do you need a victim's advocate? Well, Joe Murray is your man. He's not only an experienced trial attorney, he's also a retired 15-year member of the NYPD. He literally knows both sides of defense. His website is jmurray-law.com. His telephone number is 646-838-1702. Or you can email Joe at joe at jmurray-law.com. You know, guys, what we were um, – oh, go ahead, Tommy. You yeah, were Tommy. saying something. One quick point, and Michael agree. When you're working in the federal side, most of your witnesses are incarcerated. So, you know, you go see them or you writ them in. When you're in the state system and you got these witnesses, a lot of them, like especially with that checker case, all our witnesses were out. So it's like almost babysitting. It's it was it's so much harder while yeah. they're out, and then they're changing their mind, and that you got to find them. It's it's a very difficult job, you know, that people don't realize. When you're cooperating with the feds, you're not you know back on the street. You just you're in. The marshals are bringing you in right to the U.S. Attorney's office. Mike's calling me and saying, like, well, when we're bringing Joe Blow in to, you know, prep for trial, and I got seven Joe Blows to find who are still out of their minds at the time. You know what I mean? So it's a very different, very different situation. Yeah, that's a good point, Tommy. You bring up a good point because I've had that, you know, that we've had that discussion with John Vasunda because it was a one witness case or Mike McKeown and we were going back and forth and go find the other guy. A lot of times, you know, Mike would have to get the DIs to go find the witnesses. But yeah, when I did cases with Mike, it was me, it was me and Galetta and whatever, you know, whatever Mike needed us to do, whatever subpoenas needed to be served, whatever had to be done, we did it. You know, we didn't just like make the call and say, okay, Mike, it's, it's have fun. You right? Now, you know? no, it was just the opposite. It was uh, just the opposite of that. You know, these guys um, were always there. So, I mean, that's, that was one of the advantages. And, you know, the cases we did were all cold cases. There yeah. was nothing really that happened, you know, in, within the la- within, you know, a, a week or two or a month of, of when we when when it uh, you know when we were going to uh, arrest the guy, all of these were all cold cases. Eddie Gerentano, I think, was an eleven-year-old case. Yeah, it was. It was. It was um, you know so, but cooperators are uh, you know uh, they they and then when you have to take care of them afterwards, sometimes too, you know, you have to if you it, 
they they come like to baby us. like Tommy said. Yeah, the baby absolutely babysitter, babysitter. That guy Gattuso, he claimed that he had information about uh, about I forgot what the, what it was, and some other pe- people in the office used them. They put him up in our safe house, I and remember. he he was he and we had untaxed cigarettes. He, was robbing the cigarettes. he stole all the untaxed cigarettes that were, <laughs> were evidence for a trial and sold them. So can't make it up, right? No, I was with George Terra when all of that happened. Yeah. yeah. You know what, guys? We want to try and get back to, uh, you know, what we originally started out talking about, the episode of 2020. Now, you know, there was some part of the, the episode uh, with Sammy the Bull where they painted him as a family man. Now, I had experience with wise guys when I was a kid. I worked in the Salamaria, and there was wise guys coming out of there. And there's one guy in particular I'm going to mention, Bobby Lino, who, who's now dead. But, um, you know, his wife would come in and do shopping and stuff, and I would take the delivery over to the house, or she'd be sick, and I would just deliver it. She'd call up on the phone. But he always came in, took care of the bill. Um so there was that side of him, and you know he was a, a, a you know he was a stone cold gangster. There's no question. And they painted Sammy in this uh, documentary that they did, the two hour show, the 2020 show, uh, as being you know a family man. A lot of people don't believe it. They say it's nonsense. But I think you know there is definitely that side of people. And I mentioned you know the guy Bobby Lino that took care of his family. I knew that from firsthand experience. So they're just human beings. They happen to be an organized crime. They happen to be killers in a lot of instances, but they still had their family and they tried to do the right thing by them. Um, you want to comment that, that? Why don't you take a crack at that, Tom? If you speak to the agents that surveilled Sammy, he legitimately wanted to get home early to eat dinner at home and was out the door early to go to the gym. And once he was done with the gym, you know, he conducted his business, but he wasn't uh, a guy looking for the limelight, partying anywhere at night, maybe when he was younger, but not when he held the position in the administration in the Gambino family. So he definitely was a guy that went home to his family, 100%. The agents always said, Sammy, you know, Sammy's day ended early. Tom, you said to me the other day, everybody went out, Sammy went home. Everybody went out, Sammy went home, and those two guys in that picture holding them are the ones that can verify that 100%. Yeah, that, those are the two agents that were assigned those, to him. Those guys, that's Frank Spiro and uh, Matty Chicorico. They called them the twins. They were partners for 22 years. They had the, the only two FBI agents in the office in Staten Island. They were known by all the gangsters and uh, – they really were two. They still are. I'm saying, but when they were working, they they were the two greatest agents that uh, you you could have ever want to be in their company. You know, they were just great guys, and they groomed me, taught me things, and told me stories, and told me what to do and what not to do. And we speak to this day, and I love the both of them to death. They, they, they took you under their wing, and I oh, had the pleasure. Yeah, I asked them why I was a. A little rookie detective, nobody, and they yeah, were Tommy. I heard that you put a fourth bean in the Sambuca, and that was Frank Spiro. Smack his hand. I had the honor of meeting those two guys, and they really were. I, I tell you, I, I met them, and within a few minutes talking with them, you could see they were just good guys. You know, you could tell, and they were a pleasure to be with, a pleasure to meet, and uh, I'm sure you had a great relationship. The relationship that they have together is is like move. You know, you could you could make a movie about it. They they they've been to, they were partners for 22 years. They knew yeah. each other before that, 
and they're still dear friends today. Right. And they, they're there for each other. They're just two great guys, you know, two great human beings. That's uh, that used to, you see all those puncture holes on that? Yeah. That used to go from office to office with me, that picture. That's Sammy Gravano, Tommy Patrizio, and Benny Alloy in his schoolyard. A picture was taken next to his office. Those are did you did you just remove this photo out of your family album or what? No, those those <laughs> things on bulletin boards, like from one office to another. There. You could see all the pinpricks from yeah. it when they put it on the board on the uh, yeah. on the hierarchy board. What you have trouble seeing is the wall behind him. Those guys are so big and fat, you can't. Oh my see god! <laughs> they didn't miss many meals. Those guys knew how no. to eat, right? No. No, not at all. How how many years did uh, did Sammy testify for? Um, the last I think, well, he got a, he got rearrested in Arizona. Um, I was still in the intelligence division, so it was in early I think two thousand and one. It was two thousand and one because I had just taken the rackets. That's why so had- he was on his way in to testify again. In 2001, and so he cooperated for, I guess, 10 years. years. Yeah. 10 years. Wow. Wow. And he he got some serious time from the the stuff in Arizona, right? The ecstasy. Close to five years uh, on his original agreement, and he did close to, I think, 20 20. in Arizona. He got 20 in Arizona and did almost all. He got out, I think, a year or so early. I think. Yeah, yeah. So, so he 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 did a lot of that bid, huh? Yeah. So he did a total of twenty four years in, in prison. Well, that's post uh, getting locked up. Uh, did he, did he do time before he got locked up on the uh, with John yeah, Gotti? He, no, no. Before that, he never did anything. He did. You know, he was arrested and out. He arrested. Was arrested and out. But he never was convicted or anything. He never went to jail. Okay, okay. Right. You know, you know, Tom. Going back to what you were saying about how organized crime uh, started in the last episode, we talked about it a little bit, and you know, the mafia seemed to be in the last 20, 30, maybe forty years, they were leaning towards legitimate businesses. Now, what is the the benefit of them having legitimate businesses? Now, I know Rico probably. Um, was able to confiscate uh, funds from legitimate businesses and stuff like that. But do you think that they went to legitimate businesses just to uh, insulate themselves from, uh, you know, from being arrested? And, and, I won't mention, I won't mention certain names, but I know groups of guys that were in business with drugs, stolen cars for 15, 20 years and now own hotels in uh, like, the Caribbean, you know, um, they're out of the life completely. Uh, a lot of wise guys, I mean, Paul Castellano was in business with Frank Perdue. Right. You know, the chicken business. He was Dial in the business. You got to be a tough man to make a tender chicken. <laughs> there, I mean, there were guys that are with Sammy's construction businesses. Maybe the way he got the contracts were for Gazy, but... It was legitimate. He did legitimate work. Like it, his work wasn't shabby. His construction work was good. His drywall was good. His excavations were good. Um, guys always need legitimate businesses too to wash the money. Yeah. You know, I mean, the Cali Cartel has legitimate businesses or infiltrates legitimate businesses to wash the cash. But if you got good, you know, 
like ex-IRS agents that worked in the Brooklyn DA's office, you know, back for Mike and for Joe Ponzi, they're going to follow the paper trail and see yeah. that those legitimate business. How, how did you get the money to open up the legitimate business? Exactly. You got, you know, they have, they had tax problems, you know, you got to justify how do you live the way that you live? That's why Gotti lived the way he did as, uh, you know, as, uh, as, as he wasn't living the high life. He didn't live like Castellano. But uh, he did that because it was a way of saying, listen, I work in this plumbing company. This is what I make, you know, and, uh, and, and the legitimate businesses on if you have one, well, that's where my income comes from. And I file taxes for that business. And, and that protects them from the IRS. They think they thought it would protect them from the IRS coming after them for lack, you know, for paying taxes. But there are a lot of cases that are made based on, you know, they get a, an IRS agent to to kind of um, to to spread out how much money you would have to make or to 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 uh, put on a chart how much money you would have to make to live the way that you do. So they follow guys. What do you call? How many cars do you have? Um, where do you go to eat? What kind of um, you know what kind of suits do you buy? Uh, so if you live a lifestyle that's that's really under the radar, you can you know you can get away with it, but. You know, you know Mike, 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 I could I could just see today the captain going to the crew saying the boss wants you to send him some money in his Venmo. Yeah. You know, <laughs> you know what? This it, is this is his PayPal, you know. There's two Colombo guys, I'm not mentioning their names. I think one is worth three billion, the other was worth a billion or two. I know who you're talking and they're about. They're both in the car business, they both own yachts. They both like play like legitimate businessmen. You know, one is like revered in Florida and gives donations to political donations to stuff. They own car dealerships. They live like royalty and they made guy gangsters. You know, it's like, it just ain't fair. But you know, Tommy, if they got rid of cash as a commodity, it would be much harder to, to hide anything. I mean, even I, I, I joke about Venmo. But even Venmo and PayPal now, they track that, the IRS. Oh, sure they do. How they do. Yeah. Yeah. Say again, Tom. Guys, you know what it is? I'm sorry. If I could do it all over again, I would target guys like that. And all I would do is like 10, 15 hours a day, I would videotape them, document, you know, timestamp those videotapes for like three or four months. When they say they work for like John Gotti, work for Off Plumbing, right? For three, four months, I would just videotape him on my own time, seven days a week, that he never showed up at Off Plumbing once, and I'd go to the IRS with those tapes, and he'd have to show that he punched in to get paychecks for those days, and he never showed up. How much sick leave do you get for Off Plumbing? And lock him up on tax evasion. And you, and, yeah, and back, you know, it was done back then, but you know. One thing changed everything, and that was 9-11, because then the the spotlight went from the wise guys to terrorists. So you know there weren't as many people out there in the federal government looking at at the you know the the, the wise guys. And um, well, at that time they cut a lot of resources that exactly. were going to organize crime to go towards terrorism, and like rightfully so, you know. You know, but the cases could be made, and they were made. You know, they they were made. Look. The IRS locked up Al Capone, right? What do you think that was? That was the kind of case that we're talking about. Yeah. Where they checked his lifestyle and saw what he reported and then 
basically said to a jury, are you kidding me? This is what how he lives and this is what he's reporting. There's something missing. And, and that's essentially what the argument is. So with that, with that said, Mike and Tommy, based on, you know, tax cases and stuff like that. Now, the, the title of the show that we are doing the show about was called The Last Gangster. Do you believe that there's really, uh, I'm not going to say The Last Gangster, but do you believe that it's like there's not going to be gangsters going forward? No, absolutely not. I don't think there's going to be anything in any shape or form. Just like there's not going to be, listen, and I'm not just saying this against organized crime. I don't believe in any walk of life, in any profession, maybe you'll sprinkle one or two, but even athletes, cab drivers, entertainers, prosecutors, detectives, FBI agents, you name it. The generation changed. So so did the wise guys. You know, there's nobody out there making deals with the CIA and, you know, owning the kind of like running a country like Cuba with casinos. I mean, think about what they did. These guys, if they run, you know, uh, I don't know, a, a, a produce company or a, a fish truck or something, what do they really, I mean, some of, them, some of the older guys that are left now maybe have money from their years in that life. But what's out there now, young, that got gets made today, you can't compare them. Yeah, yeah, but you know, Tommy, organized crime is moving from the street to the computer. It's yeah. all online now. Well, the whole know? world is doing that. And that's why nobody even knows how to talk to each other no more. The whole world's crazy. You know? Listen, you know, Listen they got college for text messaging a Shylock victim that they owes her money. They text them with threats. I'll break your legs. You're out there. You know, come on, give me a break. Leaving yeah, notes on his car and text messaging him. Nobody ever said they were geniuses, you know. But listen, you know, one of the things that, you know, Phil, I, wanted to, I think one of the reasons behind you asking that question is that the, the era that we're talking about, Gotti and, uh, and, 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 and Gravano and, uh, and Castellano, um, you people, the ordinary citizen, knew who they were. And you could ask somebody, you know, who's John Gotti? They'll tell you immediately. Who's Sammy Gravano? Who's Paul Castellano? Who's who's Vincent the Chin Gigante? All you got to do is ask them. They would have known it. Now, do you have, you know, maybe you guys do, but if someone asked me who was the, uh, the head of, you know, I would say, I don't know. I have no idea. That's why people believe the mob is, is kaput. It's not. It's there. It's just different. It's just different. The That's front, the point. The, the um, you know, the, the people who are involved are different. The, um, you know, some of them are smart. Most of them are not smart, but there's a whole different world of gangsters, but they're, they're still there. So um, it's just, uh, you know, it's just, it's just different. And, and a lot of people believe that there's no mob any longer because they don't know any of the names of the families, you know, but. Uh, that, they're that still was, out there, but, you know, the days of the, the show, clubs are gone, you know, yeah. that whole or aura of stuff isn't what it used to be. Like you see exactly. the movie Goodfellas or something. Those days are over, you know? No question. Yeah, but you know, some, some really smart guys that don't necessarily have to be the Italian mafia, but organized crime oh. on the computer are devising ways to steal millions oh, and billions. These people from, from, I don't know what, you know, not traditional organized crime, but other organized crime groups 
that are making a killing or Russians. Forget what they're doing to people on the computer, you know, stealing um the fake, you know, ransomware, big what ransomware has been kidnapped or what please forget about what's going on. This this computer has been the ruination of so many things, it's not funny. There's there's a story in today's New York Post about a guy who pretended to be a billionaire on Tinder and he was he was fooling women into giving him money he gave him some kind of story that he he had he had so much money that he needed to have he couldn't spend it so he needed her credit card and i know that these are saps who give these people money but the guy is responsible at this point based on his story for stealing 30 million dollars from various women on tinder with this bullshit story he had that he was a billionaire they would give him his credit her credit credit card when he maxed out the card he said, you know, you, I'm sorry, I, I lost it. You got to give me another one. And she would open up another one. There was one woman opened up, I think, three or four American Express accounts, one after the other, because this guy kept maxing out the card, but would bullshit her and say that, you know, he lost it. So those are the kind of guys that are out there. Now, it's one guy. It's not organized crime. But how many do we, we don't know if he's got another, you know, five, six, 10, 20 guys that work with him. You know, it's... It's just it's just different. It's it's just not the same. And traditional Italian American organized crime is completely different than it was in the era that we've been we've been talking about. I I think the internet gambling is something that they've probably got their hands into. They'll get into you know. it. Yeah, yeah, they probably already are, but uh, that's maybe some direction that they might be going into. But Tom, I think you made a great point. The, the Organized crime guys of today aren't what we're used to. Mike, you made the point too. The Paul Castellanos, the Sammy the Bogravanos, the John Gottis, uh, the guys that were known, the guys that were unknown. They maybe they're flying under the radar today, but uh, yeah, I think everything's changed. Uh, the way we do policing changed now with the body cameras and surveillance uh, t- uh, cameras everywhere. So that's another thing. And uh, yeah, I'm sure it still exists. I don't yeah, think it's going to be as vicious and. Nothing to the level that it did. Nothing. Right. The, the level changed. Not. There's no way you could. They're that smart to fly under the radar, and be more successful, or even just the sophistication that they had at one time at the beginning. Of, like I said, they owned countries. Like think think of the things that these guys did back in the day, and I think the era of the '80s early 90s was really the end of what we know to be traditional organized crime the stereotypical way yeah. of traditional organized crime you know the, the commission case was a was a, a watermark in terms of absolutely crime completely changing after that that was a uh, that was a huge case and that was rico that's where giuliani used rico and uh, and used it used it successfully so that that really put a, a big crimp and and everything changed after that because these guys realized that they were no longer untouchable. Look how many times Gotti walked out of court. Look how many times he he I mean, he fixed they fixed juries. Well, you know after um, after after Rico and after the commission case, it became um, it became a lot different. And and that was to me the bellwether for them. That was they they were you know they were gone. You know you talk about how much money. I'll give you an example. You know Carmine Galante when he was running the drugs on Knickerbocker Avenue in Brooklyn for the uh, for the bananas. He was pulling in, they were pulling in close to a billion dollars a year 
back then. That's how much money they were making with the drugs. And he was, of course, in cahoots with the with the Sicilians. And um, but that's what they were doing. That's how much money there was in this. And and one of the reasons he got killed is because he was cheap. He wouldn't give out you know money. He wouldn't uh, spread the wealth around. He just wanted to take it in and take it in. But can you imagine <laughs> money? That kind of, it's unbelievable. And that's that, was that's drug that he was getting that money from. What else were they involved in? Yeah, yeah that was, yeah. He, that, that but was, nobody knew it was drug money. All the higher-ups didn't know. They didn't yeah. ask, so they didn't know. You know, it was okay. Listen, I tell you one, one thing. He, he brought the Sicilians over, the Zips over, to protect him and the Bananos who were in the drug game because the other families, he was afraid that they would be jealous of how much money they were making, and they would try to take him down. And that's one of the reasons why they he had them here. So and the two guys that he had bodyguarding him were from the other side, and they're the ones who turned. They're the ones who they killed sold him right out. He must have not been taking too good care of him that they sold him oh. out. Well, I, I'm going to give myself another a little plug. When you when I when my book comes out, that that's what my the homicide is my business. That's the name of the book. It's about a Sicilian hitman, and um, you talked about a man of honor. The secondary title is Luigi the Zip, a hitman's quest for honor. He came over here because Galante, they told him in Sicily, come over, you'll be made, you'll be made a made guy. You'll they'll you'll and he did murder after murder after murder. He did he ran drugs across the country in the pizza connection, and nobody did anything for him. And um and he got sick and he decided, not sick, literally sick, but Sick and tired of being, you know, of being taken advantage of. And he said, you know what? Fuck you. I'm going in to talk to the FBI. And he went in and he became a, he became a, an informant. So, you know, so, but they, these guys were making a fortune. When I did the research, I couldn't believe how much money they were making. Galante was making um, with, with drugs at that time. And of course, Bonanno too, until Bonanno got caught and, and got kicked out, the, you know, bounced out to Arizona. But that was their that was their thing. And they set this up back in the 50s in Sicily. They went over and sat down and set this whole thing up. Uh, and and um, and it worked. It worked great. It worked Remember great. in The Godfather when they said there's a lot of money in that white powder? And Godfather also said it, 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 uh, it, when they were talking to him, he wanted nothing to do with Salazzo's business. He says it's an infomnia. It's going to yeah. destroy them. And that was in 1972. He was right. Yep. You know, there's there's a lot of money in books too. <laughs> there's the book that uh, Tommy Dates and Michael Vecchioni, friends of the family, uh, in regards to uh, Louis Ippolito and Stephen Caracappa, known as the Mafia Cops, and that's a whole other story. Oh, but guys, we're, we're at man. we're at an hour and four, 14 minutes. I think we got to go to our uh, parting remarks. I think we covered a lot of ground on the last gangster and. The thing is, we all know there is no last gangster. There'll always be a gangster, except someone said something to me recently. They said, everybody wants to be a gangster till it's time to do gangster things. Yeah, well, <laughs> right? like, like Mike Tyson, right? Everybody's a, a tough guy until he gets punched in the punched face. Punched in the face, that's right. That's right. So, you know. Philly Grimaldi, less, less words. Last words, Tommy, as always, thank you so much for coming on. I told him today, we started talking about something earlier. He started spitting it out. I go, here he goes. It's the walking computer. It's like you're punching the key. And he Fred, starts I couldn't be a, a surgeon. 
and know all that stuff. Yeah, that's what he said. He goes, too bad I wasn't interested in being a thoracic surgeon. He goes, I'd be great at it. But again, Tommy, thanks for coming on. Mike, as always, uh, you're a superstar in this uh, in this category. Uh, you, you're very, very articulate, and uh, we really appreciate you coming on. You did such a great job all those years in the DA's office. Thank you for coming on. I think it was a great conversation in the two shows. I think we really uh, brought a lot of information to the subscribers, the listeners, and uh, thanks again to the both of you. I thanks. just want to mention uh, one last thing. Tuesday night, we have two uh, police commissioners coming on, one active, uh, Pat Ryder from Nassau County, and we have uh, Edmund Hartnett, who's a retired NYPD chief and also was the uh, police commissioner of Yonkers. Great guy, Hunnett. Uh Excellent right. guy. And he also, he ran Brosnan security for a bunch of years. And now he's a uh, consultant. He's a consultant. Um, Tell him I send my best. I will. Well, he, he told me to, to shoot you with bolo rap because that's who he, uh, he's a consultant for, you know, that, that's the wire that wraps around you and they shoot at you and it ties up your yeah, feet and you fall down. until the police can cuff you. He's a representative for that now. He, he was our boss in Intel. Great, great, yeah, great, great, great guy. guy. Mike, you have any last last thoughts? No, only I just wanted to thank you guys. This was great, and I, um, you know, two nights was uh, was it just gave me, um, you know, gave me. I don't want to say chills, but it really brought back a lot of memories and and allowed me to kind of clear out my brain somewhat and 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 uh, talk about things that I hadn't talked about in a very, very long time. But let me give you a little preview. Tommy and I were talking about this today. We have this thing cooking where we we're, we're thinking about doing a book about us, he and I, because of all of the cases that we did together. And um, and the way that we we became friends and our families knew each other. And it's a story that, um, you know, that I think needs to be told. So so, um, you know, stay tuned. That sounds great. That sounds great. Tommy, anything, uh, less words? It's always great being on the show. It's like Mike said, it's therapy, you know, and especially having Mike here, you know, it's like all it, the memories and it was just great times. It was, it was great times. And I, I miss them so much. That's why we talk about writing it and spending time together and writing a book about all these stories. It's more for therapy than anything else. And I think, I think it would be a big hit. I really do. That's great. So folks, uh, thank you so much for listening to police off the cuff on behalf of myself and Phil Grimaldi. Stay safe and have a great night. Stay night. safe, everybody. One episode, just